my dad has a whole big thing about TV actors, you yeah. know, like especially going back to like 60s, you know, 70s, where yeah. he'd just be like, oh, well, that guy, that guy, he was just a TV actor, you know. <laughs> And, and, you know, in situations where I'd be like, oh, I saw this movie with, with you know, this guy, and I thought he's great. I've never seen him in anything else. And my dad will always say, well, because he was a TV actor, yeah. you know? And it's like... <laughs> he was in the, they, and then you're, they start naming shows you've never heard of. This right. guy was in that with this person. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. He it's was in true. Brown. He was in three seasons of Brown, you know, or whatever. <laughs> Brown, what is yeah. that? Like Murphy? No, Brown. <laughs> Brown. He was a DA or whatever. It's like, oh, okay, you know? <laughs> yeah. The policeman isn't there to create disorder. The policeman is there to preserve disorder. Gentlemen, get the thing straight once and for all. We clear the streets along this route, deploy our men, and create an impassable barrier. A gauntlet, if you will. He won't have a chance. I challenge you to a duel. It's hot out there. That's, we all walk out there. Very, very, very hot. Open fire! Hello, folks, and welcome to another edition of The Gauntlet. I am one of your hosts. My name is Andrew Stasulis, and I am joined here with... Eric Marsh. And... Ryan Saunders. The Gauntlet is a weekly double feature podcast in which one of us selects a topic for the week. And the other two hosts are challenged with bringing films to the table that meet the topic, address the topic, buck up against the topic. It was my turn to pick this week, the topic that is. And as I said last week at the end of the episode, you know, uh, seems everywhere I look these days, people are having money problems. Uh, You know, people got got inflation on the brain, got got budgets on the mind, got banks in there occupying so much of their mental, emotional, and spiritual energy. And so I figured we might as well just confront it, face it, head in there, guns blazing, stick the joint up, see what we can get, and get the heck out before the cops show up. So (laughs) I decided we're going to take it to the bank this week on the gauntlet. So I asked the boys to bring me films about banks, with banks, featuring banks, small banks, large banks, regional banks, mom and pop banks, doesn't matter. Um, Financial institutions, I guess you could say. And that is what they brought. That is what we got for you this week. Um, very, very excited to talk about these films. Um, so let's bring them out. Um, I think that Ryan had the earlier film. Yes. Ryan, why don't you tell everybody what you brought? The film I picked was the first film that came to mind. The second film that came to mind is the film that Marsh picked. Hey. So... It synced up pretty well there. I I purposefully decided not to go with what Marsh selected just because I didn't want to repeat someone I had done within a calendar year, but I'm so glad we still brought it because it is, it is a favorite of mine. And I did have some hesitation 
with the film I selected. It, it was my first reaction when you announced the topic, but I knew it wasn't, you know, set in a bank. And I was thinking, well, there are so many movies set in a bank. I'm sure I can find something. And that ended up being really difficult. And I started going through and I, I was very purposefully, I didn't want to pick a bank robbery movie. I didn't want to pick a heist film. I was like, "That's Marsh's territory. I, I, if he's gonna, if that's gonna happen, I'm gonna let him handle it. And if anything, it's its own topic." I was, I was thinking, "How can I really, you know, deal with finance here?" Because me too, I've had to be thinking about budgets more in the past couple months than I have in my entire life. And I agree with oh, you yeah. that um, kind of just diving in guns a blazing is is probably the best way to to think about it. But yeah, I, I've been thinking about money. I've been getting frustrated with systems and the cash flow in general, and how things have been going. And when I was researching films that were set in financial institutions, I just was looking at these posters, and I was getting mad at these guys, you know? And then I was thinking, ah, it just takes me back to my first instinct, the film I wanted to pick, where I knew that these guys, instead of getting robbed, they were really going to be put on trial for their crimes. So what I did was I went with the 2006 film Bamako, directed by the Mauritanian-born but uh, raised in Mali filmmaker Abdurrahman Sasako. I nearly picked this film a long time ago for our Disorder in the Court episode, and I also almost picked a Sasako film for Up All Night. He's got a really interesting film called Life on Earth that is um, one evening at the, at the turn of the millennium. Very cool movie. And he's just generally a really fascinating filmmaker. I, I think he was... A really early exposure for me, actually, now that I think about it, to African cinema, because I did see Timbuktu when it when it first came out um, and thought it was a really cool film. I still haven't seen Waiting for Happiness, which I know is another, like, banner film of his, but Bamako was one that, you know, really took my breath away the first time I saw it, and I... I uh, just remember thinking, like, I hadn't seen anything like this before. And revisiting it again, it still hits. I think it's really cool. So the film is set in the capital of Mali, Bamako. And the film consists of a trial that is occurring out in the courtyard of a nightclub singer. And it's sort of like a bit of misdirection. This is one of those films where, again, we've talked about this before, where it has, like, a pre-written synopsis that journalists don't really know how to describe the film, so they refer back to, oh, it's about this, like, nightclub singer and then this trial that's going on. It's not about a nightclub singer at all. There is one, and there's some nice music in it, but really it's about a trial that's happening out in her courtyard. And it's opaque for a lot of the film you can kind of get an idea of what's going on but it really does take an hour and eight minutes before we are given explicit instruction on what's on trial here and the plaintiff of this case is african society the defendant world financial institutions including the imf and the world bank and what we see in this film are a series of testimonies from non-professional actors who wrote the testimonies themselves going after the IMF, going after the World Bank, and accusing 
global financial systems for purposefully underdeveloping Africa. I remember when I first saw this film, I was reading the great book, How Europe Underdeveloped Africa. And it like changed the way I understood that word, where you're not supposed to think of underdeveloped as an adjective, but instead as a verb and how it's an act and something that is done to a country. And this film really is preoccupied with that idea. It talks about how financial institutions and financial systems have purposefully pillaged Africa for her wealth. And of course, through all out of all of that, all of that theory, all of that passion, life goes on. And the film is actually really quite funny. And there's lots of really remarkably observed moments. It's very chill. There's lots of people just like hanging out, listening to the trial from megaphones, going about their days, day-to-day -day work. And also there happens to be like a, a little Western film starring Danny Glover at one point in the middle because uh, we have, he's one of the people we have to thank for this film's existence. Uh, the great patron saint of the arts, Danny Glover, who has uh, been executive producer on a lot of really great films uh, in the 21st century. And so it's nice to get to see him for a little bit in it too. But yeah, it's, it's a really fascinating film. I, I think we'll get into it. So I think I'm just going to leave it there. But that is uh, Bamako from 2006. Nice. Nailed it. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Ryan. Uh, Marsh, how about the film that you uh, withdrew for us? <laughs> well, you know, in fact, I did... Uh, in my mind, uh, withdraw a film from my selection process because I was really deciding between two films. Um, one, uh, I want to mention, because I didn't pick it, and that's uh, The City Below by Christoph Hockhausler from 2010, which is a, a very wonderful uh, sort of Berlin school, like, tale of finance and treachery, and it's just this, like, opaque, like, glass you know, like crazy, it's just crazy movie, but it's really just about like this woman who has an affair with this like big financier guy. And that's all just like a cover for how these people use power and manipulate people. Great film, but I didn't pick it because I can't stop watching Hong Kong movies. <laughs> and, you know, immediately when you, when you said what the topic was, my mind went to Life Without Principle from 2011 by Johnny Toe, returning gauntlet champion. Of course, it had to happen. Um, this film, you know, is what I think of when I think of um, the last, I guess, like 10, you know, 10, 15 years or whatever after the, the Great Recession. Uh, I think this is a film that, uh, you know, is not only just uh, incredibly entertaining in a conventional way, but has a lot of uh, palpable anger uh, as well, you know, in terms of the way we all sort of fit into this global financial system. Uh, and so the film itself is set over a three-day period in Hong Kong, right as the Greek debt crisis uh, sort of sets a bomb off, you know, in all these economies. And it, it really is a kind of blend of comedy, suspense, melodrama, you know, it's this kind of like hybrid thing, you know, because it's Johnny Toe. Maybe there's going to be some bloodshed, maybe there's going to be, no, not really. It's mostly just about, right, these people going through this sort of seismic event. Um, and the film's story is uh, in, you know, Milky Way fashion, uh, rather intricate. And 
you know, the great David Bordwell and Ben Sachs both describe the movie as fugue-like. So I'm going to run mm. with that, yeah. right? It's a film that has a theme, life without <laughs> life without principle, you know, which is all, and, and however you can uh, interpret that in a variety of ways. Uh, and it tells this really like three stories that center on this event and not in a linear manner. So we have first uh, Teresa, the investment advisor who works at a bank, uh, and we see sort of her life at work, which is very stressful working in this, uh, you know, this bank, you know, it sucks. Um, we'll get into that, their philosophies and all that, you know, which is another great thing this, this film does is show you how these institutions uh, sort of operate. Uh, and so Teresa is, uh, you know, dealing with her job, you know, as the stock market crashes and her conflicted feelings about perhaps, you know, manipulating people into certain bad deals. And again, we'll get into that. Uh, and then at a certain point, without telling you explicitly, the film flashbacks to before the film began, as we are now following Panther, a low-level triad played by Sean Lau Ching Lan, returning gauntlet champion from Fat Choice Spirit, of course, we all remember. Uh, he's back, and he uh, is <laughs> this low-level triad who is uh, loyal to a fault. He is this bumbling character that everyone looks down on, but he is the truest expression of traditional triad values of brotherhood and loyalty. And he is, you know, uh, caught up in a world where the triads aren't what they used to be. And in fact, the boss of their gang is having a banquet so he can get money from his members because they're all so broke. Uh, and it's a running joke that the triad is just now this just broken down, pathetic, you know, sort of gang of, of old men and that the real power lies elsewhere. Uh, and so we follow him through a variety uh, of twists and turns until he ends up in a sort of like black market stock operation. We'll get into that. And then it's also simultaneously to all this, telling the story of detective or senior inspector Chung, played by Richie Jen, who's a detective investigating a murder. And that goes throughout the film and also his wife, Connie, because they're trying to buy an apartment. And so they're the sort of like the third story that ties into this idea again of, you know, capital principle uh, and the variations of it. And so, yes, it's this crazy Johnny Toe sort of flashback structure, but it is for me uh, a thrill a minute. You know, it's a really, really just like, intense movie and one that's also because of the panther subplot i think extremely funny uh as well and uh i love it you know it's uh it's johnny toe what what more can you say you know we'll talk Absolutely. about it you're done that's uh, that's life without <laughs> principle yeah thank you thank you um yeah you know i think you both kind of hit on it in your in your introductions. Um, but yeah, to me, banks are, I think I'm, I'm not alone in feeling this, uh, sadly in, in a, in a capitalist world, this very unfortunate, necessary evil that occupies a huge part of our existence. You know, we, we need them 
and rely upon them and they are not good. They they do <laughs> they they are not a part of the public welfare, shall we say. No, um, no, no. And I think that that both of these films capture that that idea, that sentiment so well in in two very very different ways, although again to me the the spirit is is what really kind of links these films. Um, I guess I, I almost see them both in a way as sort of revenge stories, you know, sure. uh, 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 about people who, who are seeking uh, compensation, restitution, however you want to put it, from this, this, this global bank that we all now find ourselves, um, you know, unfortunately a part of. And, and especially in a globalized world, which is what both of these films are also addressing, mm-hmm. the way that, you know, what what's going on in one country has these huge ripple effects that can stretch from, you know, Berlin to Kowloon to Mali, right? And, and that we're all, unfortunately, whether we like it or not, in this together but some people don't really understand um the ramifications that has on the the sort of micro level and i think again to me that's that's what these films both do so well they they take these kind of macro uh problems but can also really root their 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 anger their frustration you know these 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 emotions you both um brought up in your intros and and can still root them into very personal kind of experiences you know because again when we look at these things so so broadly um and and you look at things like the world bank and the imf for the greek debt crisis you know for so many people for the average person it's easy to find yourself very i think like mentally disconnected to the implications of what these things are or the yeah. effects that they're going to have. And these films both do an amazing job of, of pulling us back into how this affects you, me, our brothers, our sisters all over the world. Yeah. I had seen both of these films before, but they did not exist in the same space mentally for me they are so radically different in form and style that watching them back to back changed the way i read both of them and interacted with both of them to me they're two peas in a pod now i think they're a really interesting double feature that like enhances both viewing experiences because i watched bamako first and then i started getting really steamed about all the things they were accusing the World Bank and the IMF of and how all of these things are systemic and ingrained into it. And then it's like right at the top of life without principle, so many of the philosophies that they were claiming, like this is what, this is how you're thinking about debt. This is how you're thinking about investment. This is how you're thinking about profit and cash flow. It's almost as if it's part of just the instructional day-to-day at the bank of life without principle that mm-hmm. is then leading towards a literal crisis in the film. Yeah. It's like what's going on in the courtyard 
you know, the, the, the trial that's taking place in the courtyard in uh, Bamako, right, is, is like describing what we're seeing happening yes. in life without principle. Exactly. You know? Like the evidence that they're providing and the, you know, the defense attorney who's like, what are you talking about? That's not what actually goes on. We are literally seeing it happen, <laughs> right. you know, in the boardroom of the bank in life without principle. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So yeah, it was just, it was really nice getting to have these films next to each other. Cause now I'm always going to think of both of them in relation to each other for that very reason. And yet, such uh, radically different approaches to form. With Bamako, we're back in uh, hybrid land, right? Mm -hmm. We're back in sort of Karastami territory where uh, fiction and documentary uh, are intertwined, right, throughout. And and I love how you described it, Ryan, that like, I, I really found my way into the movie through outside of the courtroom. Mm-hmm. Not to say I don't love what's in the courtroom, but one of the one of the great classes I took in my life was like, you know, some class I had to take and it was like people, markets and societies and we just read like, you know, books about globalization, you know? So like ever since then, you know, I've been I've been sort of like obsessed in following this kind of stuff in in the world, the crimes uh-huh. of the IMF and the World Bank, you know? Um and so uh the the stuff that's just around the court to me was also just so pleasurable. Uh you know, it reminded me almost too of like do the right thing, like the three guys hanging out on the side of the wall. There's like a group of three guys in this movie who are always like chilling and it's like saying very little or just like playing board games. Uh, and just the way we get all these little, like, again, these small interactions and these human interactions, uh, that have nothing to do with the courtroom, but also reinforce what's being said, <laughs> you know, what's being said in, in yeah, a way. It's so good. Cause it's Jonathan Rosenbaum calls it out in his capsule where he mentions that Sasako really smartly doesn't draw any overly neat comparisons or links between the things that are happening outside the courtroom and what's being said. It never feels like it's explicitly designed to be like, oh, and look at this. This little like day-to-day activity is symbolic of the types of things we're talking about here in the courtroom. They just sort of naturally complement each other and then just all feel a part of the same piece. Yeah, well, to, to me, it's, it's also, again, that... I- idea of putting the very important human face to the mm-hmm. issues that are that are being discussed so that these problems don't remain abstract for us you know that that we see the people we see the people of this place and we see their life and i think that there's actually you know i i think in your introduction, I mean, you described the film very well, and and it's again, yes, it's a very um, upsetting film when you look at the facts, when you look at the facts of the case. But I think also in those moments of life, you know, around this court, um, there's also a lot of like humor. There's a, a really kind of like touching humanist view of how life does have to also simply go on for a lot of these people, you know? And it's, it's obvious that, that, you know, I I think as the film progresses, you know, the idea sort of 
is presented by both sides that, you know, well, what is this trial even really going to accomplish? Mm -hmm. Well, again, it's not necessarily about the trial per se, but the, the act, the act of, of the sort of like radical living that is taking place, like in this courtyard, both through this, this trial, but also the way that, that people of this community are also just sort of existing within it and yeah. around it, you know? It's a film where you could be simultaneously crying at the indignities that are being expressed and then find yourself in those same moments laughing with good-hearted joy at the sound of like a little child's like squeaky sneakers as he's yeah. like wandering around the courtyard, you know? Yeah. All um, the court clerks, like those little kids are, I was loving them. Yeah. There's just so many faces. There's like so many fun little quirks throughout everything that's happening inside the court courtyard and outside of it. But yeah, I mean, what you were saying, Marsh, they couldn't be more formally different. Bamako goes back and forth between actual footage shot on film that is quite lovely, and then the actual scenes inside the court are shot on maybe HD, but it's kind of like SD cameras, and it was shot live. So it's a multi-cam setup like a courtroom, and it just plays out, and that's what he's cutting between. It's like some kind of low-grade digital stuff. And then on the flip side, you've got Johnny Toe's film, which is like a Johnny Toe film, very heavily plotted <laughs> and one that still, I feel like I almost understood the plot a little bit less on the second go around, which is kind of funny. <laughs> there were like some details that I remembered vividly the first time that felt like they escaped me this go around, but you're always in such good hands. It's something that is so cinematic and so f formally controlled. The camera's always moving it is glistening. It's just such a gorgeous thing to look at. But it is funny comparing these films that are preoccupied with very similar things. One, Bamako, that is almost entirely plotless. And then Johnny Toe's Life Without Principle, that is so plot-heavy that he has no time to repeat himself ever. And if you miss anything, that's it. You lost it. You just got to keep going. <laughs> Yeah, well, you know, it's like uh, classic Hollywood or Hollywood repeats everything three times for all the dum-dums. Johnny Toe has no, he's got no, you know, he's got no interest in that, He's right? got no time for it. <laughs> he is running out of time, yes. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, what, God, yeah, I think what impresses me so much, and this is, you know, something that I had remembered, I saw this not too long after it had come out. I saw it on video, but um, I remembered the scenes in the bank with Teresa, like so vividly. And it's this amazing thing where it's like her office is just like this extremely cramped uh, sort of cubicle uh, with re horrific red paneling. Uh, and it's just this like, it's just this horror space to me, you know, when I kind of think about it. Um, and I, I found one really interesting detail uh, in an interview with him where he said that, you know, as his working methods developed, one of the things he would do is is conceive of a space in his mind and then just say, like, that's it. We have to film no matter what the space is. Like, we're not going to move the wall to accommodate the camera. We're going to 
construct this space as I see it in my head, as if it's a real place, and then have to put the camera somewhere real, right? Mm. So it's like thinking about that and that he was talking particularly about this set and just the way he shoots this tiny office um, that's such a central part of the movie and where so much of the emotion of the movie comes from um, is just like a, an amazing thing. It's like Hitchcock-esque, especially when he's dealing with like the older, uh, Teresa's dealing with the older woman who's like trying to get a higher return on her investment. Uh, and it's like this extended you know, I want to call it a set piece, but it's just two people sitting in chairs. Mm-hmm. And yet. And yet he shoots it like a Johnny Toe movie. Yeah, it's a fucking <laughs> set piece. It's an investment banking swindle set piece as Teresa is sort of goading this woman into a high risk plan that, you know, her bosses are pushing on her and she's pushing on her customers because her sales are down. You got to invest in brick B-R-I-C, you know, (laughs) we don't have to get into all that, but, uh, yeah, basically, yeah, you know, manipulating, uh, this poor woman into, you know, (laughs) gambling away her, her entire life savings. Um, and it's just the most invigorating, like classical cinema I can think of. Yeah, because mm-hmm. he moves from extreme wide shots trying to fit this small room within the scope lens. I remember Molly at one point said, like, why is this a fisheye? And I said, do you see how small this room is? This is just yeah. where the camera is. He so literally it, it, can't do it any it, other way. Right. <laughs> but he uses it to his advantage. I think the anamorphic warping with that red paneling in that office is used to an interesting emotional effect. It makes you really uneasy. And I, you know, I don't feel as though that woman who is trying to decide where to put her investments is, is in good hands with Teresa. I mean, we saw what Teresa had to go through to get to this point about what was being demanded of her in terms of sales quotas or whatever for these investments. But yeah, he starts really wide and then he, it gets closer and closer as the scene goes on and then the cutting becomes a bit more rapid and when things are developing because she she has to have it on a recorded call so that oh, the no. bank understands that, you know, this woman who decided she was going to do some investments knew it was high risk and completely understood the entire time. And yeah, the rhythm of it and the scene as it goes on, it almost feels like it's a gun a gunfight, you know, just because of the way he shoots it. It's so cool. This 陣間我問你任何問題,你只需要答清楚明白。清楚明白。That woman going, I completely understand over and over again is one of the most disturbing <laughs> oh, things yeah. about like that says a lot about our society, you know, that's just us clicking every turn, you know, t- term of agreement with any corporation. Like I understand completely. Like, I agree to these terms. <laughs> I, yeah. I, I've read the documentation that I agree to these terms. And there's a great moment where uh, Teresa asks her like, would you like coffee? And she's like, I understand completely. <laughs> just like can't respond. I mean, oh my God, what? Yeah. And then it's just so heartbreaking when the boss comes in and says, you know, oh, this is a high risk investment. Why have you decided to do this? And like, why is it specifically this company you would like to invest in? And she just smiles and says, I would like more money. I think he even, he sets it up um, even before we get into that office, like when we get into the bank for the very first time, 
I mean, I guess even for me, like zooming out even further, it's like, uh, you know, Johnny Toe film, right? So it's like the very first shot is just the cityscape. And then I believe the, the second shot is just like blood on a floor, yeah. right? And and it's it's just such an amazing way to like enter this film, right? Because it's like, oh, here we are, the city crime. And we get this this cop on an investigation. And and we're sort of like, all right, here we go. Let's go. I, 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 I'm into this. And then it's like, we're we're looking at it, uh, two people looking at an apartment, you know? It's like, what about the, the, the crime? Like, you know, it's a very smart way of like pulling us into this film because it's like, Okay, you think that this murder that took place is is the greatest crime of the film? Like, sit back. Like, we've got some other crimes to show you. And, like, he takes us into the bank. And and the, the first introduction of the bank, the soundscape and the design of it and the people, like the hustle and the bustle, it's like a casino. <laughs> It's the same approach to a casino, like the the constant like stimuli, right? And this sound, this the sounds of of prosperity, but also these sounds that kind of just keep you off kilter a little bit and we get this yeah. sort of like old guy that enters the bank and he's like well what what's going on around here you know he seems even like confused and the customer service people are on him and they're, they're sort of trying to direct him but explain how it all lays out like i think it's a very conscious choice that he is linking this bank to a casino and of course as you've both described with this this older woman i mean that's that's exactly what's going on here. They want to get people in. They want to get them to to put their money down on the table. Yeah, maybe they'll 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 win, but the house is covered no matter what, and that's all that really matters. And that's the whole explanation of of what that woman's job is. Right, your job isn't to make people money or or get them to lose money. Your job is to collect fees for these transactions. And some transactions are going to have larger fees, right? I mean, that's what is so, like, uh, unnerving about that scene with the woman. I mean, aside from, like, the visual design and, and as you said, her sort of, like, robotic way of, of kind of, like, approaching that loan, it's, it's just the very principle behind what's taking place, you know, mm -hmm. that... That they they are this is just gambling. It's literally just fucking gambling, and it's a game, and it's a game in which the house is always up. Right? There's a quote from The Longest Night from 1998, which I recently watched for the first time. Really good Johnny Toe movie. Uh, and someone says, "You and and it's like cop and criminal, right? Classic." And and one of them says, "You and I are like pinballs." Where we go, when we stop, it's not up to us. And I think, like I was thinking about that in the context of, of this film. Again, that's, uh, I think, a perspective that Toe often has of looking at these characters bouncing around Hong Kong by forces out of their control. And I love when we go into the bank that it's like, it's like a noir. When all the bankers are meeting, 
it's lit like the fucking beginning of Citizen Kane, yeah. you know, with like the reporters. <laughs> and you're like, oh shit, you know? And even later, Teresa's in the coffee room and they've got Venetian blinds on the walls, you know, indicating like the bank is a noir space. The bank is a criminal space. Mm-hmm. And we see that immediately we, when we come in. And, you know, especially about the opening, I want to bring up that uh, while narratively, you know, yes, it's they're dangling it, but it has a, a class element as well because the murder's in the slums, yeah. right? And it's very pointedly like two very poor, desperate people who had done violence to each other. And so again, that like again fits into this macro vision that yeah. you know he's taking us he, into, he, into. He kind of bounces between spaces in this opening and with certain characters to establish that very clear class dynamic you're describing. It's it's haves and have-nots in modern China. We we see the cop basically touring two apartments, right? I mean, he tours this first apartment in the slums and he peeks in on on more or less like the 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 very cramped and almost communal living that's going on yeah, there. Dozens like, of people. Yeah, there's a there's a fucking brutal murder that took place and there's just in the next door there's a guy cooking on a walk. There's another guy just reading the paper, you know, totally uh, oblivious or apathetic to whatever murder might have have transpired here and the cop is just like kind of poking his head in all the different rooms and then the very next moment he's now in a a luxury high-rise condo apartment with a with his like girlfriend or wife uh pointing out what an amazing view of the beach they have you know and and how much it is i mean it's it's like a a total doubling and and an establishment of of how huge the economic, you know, how, how big that economic disparity is in contemporary China. And then again, in the bank, uh, before we see the old woman, we're introduced to a very important character. Oh, yes. Mr. Yen. Yes. You know, and we see... The man. We see Mr. Yen's bank account, and we clearly see how much money he's got. And then, you know, the very next scene, the old woman comes in, and she has a fraction of what he has. But... Uh, you know, as, as the film will, will progress, right? Like, um, yeah, Mr. Yen is going to become a very, very like important and very important figure. Yeah. And he's a, he's a lone shark, uh, which is one of the film's great gags is that he berates Teresa because his rates are better than the banks, you know, his fees Mm -hmm. are lower and he is like. A no good, a no good loan shark. Yeah, well, you know, also there's, there's, there's all this, there's this like this, this anxiety over what's going on, and he's just loving it. I mean, he's thriving on it. You know, he's laughing. I also love like the, the just details of his character, like and how he interacts in that space because he's just taking every like accommodation he can get every little bit of like luxury that the bank has to offer, you know, like he's, he's like asking for a free coffee. She has candies on her desk and he's basically like filling his pockets when she's not paying attention with all the free candies. I mean, this guy is just nickel and diming this bank while they're also desperately trying to just get a piece of his action. And also doesn't he like, he, he was given some like, 
a free gold pen for some investment or something like that. And then he just gives it to her, right? Like he just gives it to the bank employee. Like, I, I don't need this here. You can have my free gold pen that somebody else gave me. He's answering multiple cell phones and just like <laughs> cutting loan shark deals. Like 30%, you know, he's like raising the rates in between different calls. Like what a legend. That's what I imagine that uh, Monsieur Rapaport does uh, when he's not <laughs> on trial in oh, yeah. in Africa. One of cinema's great villains, by the way. <laughs> yeah, truly. I, I didn't I didn't address Monsieur Rapaport in uh, in my intro. Programme que vous avez proposé, c'est que l'on se ressaisisse. Voilà une belle idée, bien générale, bien abstraite, et qui ne fait pas un programme. The main white man who is um, defending the IMF and the World Bank is an extremely funny looking old French man that uh, very early on is like it's we're drawing attention to the fact of his goofiness when he's like buying some sunglasses and trying out uh, all the different shades and the scorching hot sun of Molly. <laughs> but he's also he's also upset because I mean it doesn't say Gucci yeah, on it. I mean these right. are clearly knockoff sunglasses you know and he's just pissed because it doesn't have Gucci on it you know. Right. Not that he's buying knockoffs but the fact is if he's gonna buy knockoffs he wants to be good knockoffs <laughs> exactly <laughs> yeah i love that guy he's an extremely great source of comedy in that movie i love when he's also taken like a bunch of phone calls and at one point like a sheep on on a, on a rope that's like leashed outside like nearly topples him over you know like lunges at him directly <laughs> and I, i'd like to see that guy taken down by some by some local animals i think that would be a nice bonus feature on the dvd that shot of like a couple of judges on mobile phones at the break was cracking me up for yeah. like no reason but uh Good stuff. Well, it's just funny because of the like contradiction between the private and public spaces. And I think right. that I, I hadn't thought about it this way, but when you were describing life without principle, all of these bank rooms feeling like a noir, all these things hidden behind Venetian blinds, all these Citizen Kane styled rooms. And then the difference between that in the courtyard in Bamako, where normally you'd expect a you know a court session to be held in a private space and especially anything banking related to be held in a private space. And this courtyard is fully communal. We were talking about all the life that's around the edges, and that's because this is not a private space. This is full-on a, a communal space that a wedding moves through the middle of the courtroom at one moment because the space sort of just belongs uh, to everybody. There is a guard and a door, and yes. people do not get let in, you know? No, it's true. It's true. Yeah. But there is like the, the, and again, going back to, I think what you said in your intro where, you know, probably people who only like, you know, who, who wrote a synopsis based on a synopsis that they read from somebody who didn't even watch the movie or something like that. Like there is that like quote lounge singer character that, that sort of bookends the films with song, but, but like she is is like constantly like leaving and like going off to her like I guess gigs or her well, work. Well, she lives right? there. It's her right. courtyard. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I love that. Like that. That's like a part of like the the, the gag is that like she's kind of like I don't almost like like whatever this is going here. This doesn't you know this doesn't have an immediate effect on what I have to do. I've got to go out there and like do mm -hmm. my thing and I've got to sing. And like she, she wears these really nice dresses, but she constantly needs like help kind of like 
tying the back and she'll kind of have somebody who's in the court gallery like help like zip her up basically as she's getting out to leave in the middle of a huge trial against the IMF. I mean, yeah. <laughs> I think again, like that that contrast is like what I was like holding on to throughout the film that that you know those people and and how you know a a kind of like you know western liberal filmmaker would approach this similar material and 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 especially with the idea of like courts in general you know i think sisako is is also like commenting on the idea the idea of the legal system on a certain level of mm-hmm. of the value of of courts you know, more broadly, because it's sort of like, you know, you think about like how Spielberg would handle like a trial like this, you know, and, <laughs> yeah. and shoot this thing. And it would be in some, some hallowed halls, right? You got to see the pillars of the courthouse and the, you know, the, the, the wood paneling and everything like that. You mm-hmm. know, justice would loom over this because justice is this ideal, right? The court is here to protect people. And that's what's often proven in in like liberal courtroom dramas, right? The corruption gets snuffed out in the courtroom. But but here it's a very, very, very different story. Like the the, the setting itself is also an indictment of you know what would happen in a courtroom in the West in Switzerland in Washington or wherever. And I think that's what makes the people so much more uh, heroic to me in that regard, you know? Yeah, and we should bring up uh, Mele's husband, Chaka, who's like the other, like, I guess, most featured character not in the courtroom. Um, And while the film doesn't really have a plot, it does give us context, at least into these two people's lives more than anyone's. And we come to understand that he's unemployed. You know, he used to work the rail yeah, the rail yards, but that's all gone now. There's no more train that comes through, so there's no more work. And that tension between them uh, is really like the core of like what they're dealing with. Because she, she announces very early on, like, I'm going to Dakar fuck this, you know, or whatever, whatever. Mm -hmm. It is just very like, I'm leaving the situation, but it never turns into like melodrama. And we never really like learn too much about these people, you know, but we get enough to understand this kind of situation standing in for a more universal or African uh, situation or context of being like, yeah, these jobs are just taken away on a whim, you know, and then look at the ramifications of it right down the road can't we don't have any health care we don't have any money like so on and so forth uh and so we're seeing that uh, you know again as wandering in and out of the courtroom which is itself kind of a joke you know yeah. like what what everyone is saying is not a joke but i think you're right andy that the court is like it's a kangaroo court, you know, because they have no authority. Certainly, they have no authority over the World Bank or the IMF. I mean, <laughs> yeah, it's, obviously, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a symbolic performance, yeah. you know, and and it's it's like it is street activism, you know, street theater almost on a certain level, you know, and 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 I think that's like he, it, that's the complexity of the film is him like right on that line. Of of sort of like giving these people uh, this this very like kind of like dignified 
testimony, you know, this opportunity to, uh, to, you know, provide evidence, shall we say, in the, in the parlance of the court. And yet also, um, never letting us lose sight of the, the practical issues that the people of this town, of this courtyard, of this community, the practical issues that they face. Because there's so many other things that are that are also taking place. I mean, like, yes, we get a shot of these guys in their fancy robes on, on phones or whatever, and then we also see... 10 feet away women who are like, look, I gotta, I gotta dye these, these textiles. I gotta like get this stuff out of here. This is the only way I'm making any money. Like, and, and your court is cool. And, and people are kind of like half paying attention, but they're also still fighting for their lives, you know, in a way that doesn't allow them to just take it easy, right? Just sit and, 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 and chill in the courtroom with, with Rappaport and these other guys. <laughs> well, yeah, I think it, I really love the very beginning of the film as it relates to a lot of this, especially this idea of, you know, what would actually come from a trial like this. And that also being just the fact that no such trial will ever exist or could ever exist. <laughs> yeah. And I, I, I love the beginning of the film where the first person that does like head up quote unquote to the stand or at least to the microphone to speak to everybody is speaking out of turn. It's not his moment yet to talk to the audience, to share his testimony, but he resists. He says, you know, words are something that sees your heart and it's bad to keep them inside. Dites-lui que ce n'est pas encore son tour. Il aura l'occasion de parler pour le moment qu'il se retire dans la salle. Torba. Ko ikmak mama se donia, makma di makro. Yani kmak asima. Katisirisi yo. Aiwa, kuma le feya shoge. Na be du chocolat, be du chocolat. Ni ma so ka fo ka fo atite. And I feel like it's such a great way of starting the film because, yes, of course, this trial, what is this trial? What legal standing does this invented trial have even within the context of this film? Nothing. But the idea being that it's too painful to keep these words inside of you and that this film is this exercise in seeing, well, what would happen if we did get these words out in front of these people in this type of formalized setting that will never be granted to us to actually like deal with these issues? And I think that's one of the like interesting games that the movie's playing. Yeah, because again, it, I think it, it speaks to the obscenity of even having a trial like this in the first place. Right. You know, it speaks to the the obscenity of Rappaport's defense for this this bank. There's <laughs> there's nothing to defend. I mean, there, there is no defense for this. What is the defense? And like, again, I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves, but but you know, when you get farther into it and and it's sort of like I guess almost like the closing statement that he delivers for like how he's going to defend, you know, like what what is our actual defense? Other than simply saying, well, mismanagement and corruption is what actually did Africa in. It's it's actually what what did the third world in. Like he goes completely off the rails, you know, at a point when 
when again, there's there's nothing, there's no principle to actually defend. Again, you want to talk about life without principle. I mean, that is the that is the essence of this trial. That is the essence of the IMF. That is the essence of the World Bank. It's it's that they 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 have no principles beyond money, beyond taking advantage wherever they can find one. Yeah, you know that this guy's in a bad place when his his like opening defense is like we need to gl- we need to civilize globalization. Yeah. That's what he says, right? Again, and and the 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 witness who's who's uh, you know on the stand against him at that time like immediately undercuts it by saying the very fact that it's a thing that has to be civilized means it's inherently uncivilized. It's it's inherently dehumanizing, I think is the word that that she says, right? It's like, so you're here not to defend something, but but to argue that it's not as bad as you think it is or something, right? Like, no, it's as bad. It's worse, in fact. Yeah, and that woman, the writer, uh, Madam T, uh, she she goes off, and that's really just like great kind of like early testimonial uh, where you know she's doing the whole damn thing. She like you know calls out Bush, you know, at a at a certain point, which yeah. is how you know it's two thousand and six. But and everybody like laughs when she mentions his name too. Like it's great that he's just <laughs> such a, like an international joke, you know. Right. And yeah, but you know, again, you know, this is this is still the world we live in. She says uh, the West has created and imposed two fears terrorism and immigration and then, you know, says everything is for sale and they sold off all the public goods and services. Yeah, I mean, I had a hell of a time when I was watching this movie. I mean, I think we 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 all do at times when we're watching foreign films and we're trying to take notes and it's a, it's an especially like well written film or it's an, it, yeah. there's just a lot being said and and everything has a lot of weight. I mean, I was like doing that awful dance where I'm like trying to look up, trying to write scribble because I'm like, wow, what that person just said is brilliant. I gotta get it. And then I'm like missing the next thing that they said, you know, and I'm pausing totally, and rewinding. Yeah. Because like what she said after that, what I thought was so, so powerful in that statement, you know, like, yes, she says, yeah, you know, terrorism and immigration, you know, yes. But, but what she says is like something to the effect of, you know, we, we cannot continue to let the causes of the problems be their solutions. Right. And that's the, like the, the vicious cycle she's talking about of, you know, colonization and post-colonization and neo-colonization and globalization, you know, terrorism and immigration, you know, what is the solution to terrorism and and, and, and immigration for Western countries, for wealthy European countries? It's to just keep kicking, right, yeah, or whatever, just to keep kicking them down farther and farther into, into a cycle of jobless, hopeless poverty that forces people Again, through characters we've seen in this film who who literally are like, I would take any job. Can I have a job? Please, anybody, right? Yeah. But no, the jobs have been taken away. They've been sold off somewhere else. And then again, this 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 thing, right? This this specter, I think that that Baudrillard would refer to. It's like, is it any surprise that that this is happening through these immigration crises that then politicians are getting elected on, right? It's like that that group of people coming here are coming here because of the policies that you continue to put in place. Yeah. You know, it, it's, it's horrible. 
it seems like one of the like central theses to so many of the testimonies, but especially especially hers is attempting to just decolonize the narrative and always talking about, you know, this is an invented narrative. The World Bank and the IMF is actively creating a narrative and changing what the preoccupations are, claiming what the causes to all of these effects are, talking about terrorism as being something that relates to all of this. And she has that really fantastic line where she says that she just flat out opposes what has been presumed to be the key characteristic of Africa, that she is just a country of poverty when instead she is a victim of her riches. That's how she would describe it. Je me lève en faux contre le point de départ, le monde ouvert. Nous ne vivons pas dans un monde ouvert, Monsieur Rapaport. Je crois que ce que vous avez lu répond est tout à fait avec éloquence aux questions que vous posez. Si il y a lieu d'améliorer, de civiliser la mondialisation, c'est qu'elle décivilise, elle déshumanise. Vous me dites que les candidats africains à l'émigration qui sont des réfugiés économiques, qui sont arrêtés, menottés, rapatriés, humiliés, que nous recevons aujourd'hui, si vous me dites que devant cette terrible réalité que le monde entier a regardé avec consternation que nous vivons dans un monde ouvert, alors il est certainement ouvert aux blancs, mais il n'est pas ouvert aux noirs. And even then, I was when I was trying to connect these movies after the fact and doing a little bit of research, I wanted to see like what was some of the stuff that came up when I even searched for Mali and the 2008 financial crisis. And the very first thing that comes up is the IMF blog, like the official analysis website. Yeah, let's go. By the IMF. Yeah. Talk about controlling the narrative. Them saying, you know, in previous global downturns, sub-Saharan Africa has usually been badly affected, but not this time around. And the entire piece is talking about how, well, it, you know, in the 2008 financial crisis, Af sub-Saharan Africa is actually doing pretty good. And of course, I didn't spend the time to like really read this in Vetted or anything like that. You know, I'm not going to like argue about because I don't know <laughs> really anything about global well, economics I'm, in the way. I'm also not going to just take their fucking word for oh, it. Exactly. <laughs> I know, but it's funny that like. I understand completely right exactly i completely understand thank you imf yeah totally <laughs> and if anything yeah that does seem like it's at least one of the goals of this trial and this movie is just how can we change the narrative then there are so many things that we're steady on the tracks this is how people interpret all of these situations but this is each of them is at least attempting to pull the rug from under under us on all of those assumptions and again i think that's why it's so important for this film to be constructed in the way that it is, where we have so many moments of just spending time with these yeah. people, the people of Mali, the actual people, not just the attorneys. You know, the attorneys are are really like to me the supporting characters of the film. The 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 stars, the main characters of the film are are all the the citizens of this this courtyard of this town of this of this city of africa more broadly but also the world you know and 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 it's like just like you described the the, the kid with the squeaky shoes you know like you know everybody in this place is beautiful and is 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 a creature that deserves our respect and our concern and our care and the film celebrates their humanity 
And I think that's that's the best way to change those narratives of this, yes, lawless, corrupt, violent place that the IMF is is often, you know, doing whatever it can to sort of strip of anything of value and then and remind people that, you know, these countries are where we, you know, where extremism is is bred, you know, and then exported around to Paris, to New York, to to our shores, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it was it was in the news uh, this past week because it came up in uh, in Congress, but uh, there have been nine coups in Africa by people who were trained by the United States military. I think in the last five years. Um, so a lot, you know, again, you know, we don't have to get, don't have to get into all of this, but yeah. just, yeah. How offensive, um, <laughs> yeah, again, it, it all is. I mean, it's just, is, yeah, is really just mind, mind boggling, yeah. you know, there's again, there's, there's no defense. There's no defense to be made. I mean, it's, it's like, yeah, they're, they're, they're dead in the water. I mean, and, and that's why it's funny even when Rappaport at a certain point, like turns on the judges and is like, well, you're biased, you know, that's the thing you're biased. It's like, well, <laughs> anyone would be biased. Anyone would be biased if you put it in these terms. And, you know, that reminds me of, uh, I, I dug up, I had to translate it from French using Google, so it might not be a hundred percent accurate, but, uh, Johnny Toe was of course asked about this, uh, what he thought of, you know, finance and uh he said of course the financiers the financiers are worse than the triads they are bandits pirates and unlike the gangs they operate in broad daylight they abuse power and nobody for the moment can overthrow them because they have money an army of lawyers and connections in the political world right and i think that's so key then to the understanding of the the middle chunk of the film as we get into the panther saga and we should <laughs> We should discuss first, I think, uh, Sean Lau's performance uh, as as our way in here because uh, I love it so much. And it's a very mannered performance. Uh, he's constantly blinking uh, in a way that is, I guess, suggests he's of like low IQ or something's kind of wrong with him, you know? Uh, or he's just this weird little guy, yeah. you know? Um, he's fidgety. <laughs> yeah, he's just like constantly tweaking. Um, and we get introduced to him trying to like corral all these all these people and do a, a sort of like triad banquet. Uh, and then he like goes across the street and we're introduced to the boss uh, and his wife and they're going through the envelopes and seeing what people gave and just being very, you know, not cool about it, you know? But, uh, but again, the triads, what is a triad? Uh, these guys... In 2011, you know, and I think that contrast as the film goes along when we do kind of like meet some actual people with power later in the movie, um, it's on a whole other level. And I think that's a really interesting place for Toe to be coming from as this filmmaker who's covered the triad so extensively uh, and really understands like that network and that history, uh, then deploying it here as this like comic-ish sort of segment like in this in this whole crazy movie. And this transition to the new segment I almost want both of you to describe it to me or see what you caught because it's so funny. The first, because we have to say this second segment starts. Uh, yeah. <laughs> we go backwards. It like starts yes. over again. And I remember 
In hindsight, the first time I saw this movie, once it was clear after we entered the second sequence that we had like gone back in time, that we had like reverted and were back where we started, I remembered thinking at the time, oh wow, how did he do that? I didn't see it. I'll have to revisit this. And then it was this go around that I had forgotten that was how the film was even designed. And I thought the same thing again. When we see a character who has just been bludgeoned and presumed dead and he's now alive again, the lone shark, you go, oh, we just went back in time. When did that happen? I still missed it this time around. Does he do anything or is it just he's really sneaky? Nope. It's not signaled at all. There's the scene in the parking garage that comes back and we see what happened to him uh, in a certain respect, like Teresa sees him and he's got blood all over his head. And then, yeah, two minutes later, he's in in another scene with these other guys. He's coming and hanging out with the triads. Going to have to go frame by frame. Yeah, it's very much like, was that him in the car? It totally was. The comb over is like unmistakable. And that's such a nice touch to signal that, yes, we are now have now circled back before that ever happened. But right, he doesn't signal it, which is such such a bold uh, thing that that he loves to do. You yeah. know, just figure it out, catch up. Well, and one of the ways he he handles it as well, and I, I can't remember exactly when it happens, but you know, as you described, when Mister Yen is in the office on the phone, we hear his side and only his side of a phone conversation, and then later we get to hear the other side we we get the, the same phone call again but now we're only hearing what was on the opposite end right to add all that yeah, extra context such a perf- so brilliant yeah, it's so it really good is. i did want to say since you brought it up you know the, the again like the depiction of the triads in in this film it it kept reminding me of this great documentary i i saw not not great in the sense that it's like a very well-made film but just great because of the subject matter this is awesome documentary from like 10 years ago called Twilight of the Yakuza. And it's basically the, the middle section of this film. It's basically like the banquet of, of this film, but, but from the Yakuza perspective and the whole, you know, essence of the documentary is basically how like the, the Yakuza are, are an endangered species because all the traditions, all of that stuff, especially in today's day and age, like none of it matters anymore. The loyalty, they the all brotherhood, went corporate, dude. right? They all went corporate. Like young guys are are have discovered very early on that you can make a, a better killing working in a in a financial institution with you know all that sort of extra legal backup you have of you know, tape recorded conversations and contracts and that sort of thing. It's, it's no longer blood oaths. Now it's, it's signing your life away and you just sort of robotically saying again, I understand completely, but, but Twilight of the Yakuza is just, it's like so sad. It's so funny to see these people that's, that are trying to rest on the laurels of all that stuff, you know, the, the, the themes of honor and and that sort of thing. And now it's just like not really meaning anything being just totally decaying. Cause even in the the banquet, you know, he says like, well, you know, you used to, you used to fill 60 tables in here. Now you guys are cheating. You know, the, the manager of the, the the manager (laughs) of the banquet's like, 
You know, you kind of have stuffed people into these tables. You could have probably bought a couple of extra ones, but you're clearly just trying to save a few bucks, right? Like, Oh, yeah. He's hassling the manager. You know, they're really pinching pennies. Yeah. And it's funny because then we're introduced to... Uh, is it Lung? What's the the stock, bro? Yeah, Brother Lung, dude. We're introduced to Lung with his cigar. And while all the other triads seem kind of broken down and cheap and broke, he seems to be living large, unlike everyone else. And all of the sudden, we have one of our plot convergences where Detective Chung and the West Kowloon crime unit come into the banquet to arrest Lung uh, for uh, some sort of attack on a, a bus, <laughs> bus terminal or something. I, don't, I forget I don't the know. specifics there, <laughs> but uh, some sort of like, yeah, violent crime activity, and they, they arrest him. And immediately Panther springs into action to try and get him bail money uh, and no one no one wants to help so there's like a whole comic series of him bothering people and begging uh, for their money so he can bail out brother lung it's such a beautiful sequence I mean he's he's my I mean how could he not be right he's like the best guy in this whole movie because like he's doing everything for the right reasons. He's like one of the only people in this movie that's like doing things out of the goodness of his heart. He has a life with principle. Yes, he does. He's he's the, he's the guy who has the principle in the film. And like every single person he goes up to, right? He's he's almost like guilt tripping them into being like, "Remember this used to mean something 10 years ago. You would not have turned this down, right? He's a good brother for us." I mean, the the one guy he goes to again, like we see that the other guys are like now ex triads. They've got other gigs. I mean, one of the guys is just like recycling paper or he's something like, like that. He's selling cardboard. Yeah, he's he, like, yeah, I make way more money doing this than than being a tri- being a triad. Yeah. And he just has a truck full of cardboard. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like just picking up garbage, basically. I love the restaurant manager. There's a whole. There's like a whole sequence where. Lau and his two, uh, you know, his two sort of goons at the beginning who later comically quit, you know, because of this quixotic quest. But they uh, they just sit in a restaurant all day so they can hassle the owner who's some kind of ex-triad and get money from him. And they sit there all day. And again, it's one of those like Johnny Toe scenes where you're like, why are we watching this? Like, what is going on? And then it's night. And then the restaurant manager comes in just like, I sat across the street all goddamn day waiting for you to leave. I can't take it anymore. What do you want? You know, and just. He says, you've got tenacity. (laughs) Don't ever want to see you in here again. I'm trying to run a restaurant. Get out. You know, I love the implication, too, that it's also like he's got literally nothing better to do than sit here all day. They're just like watching TV in there. Yeah. Amazing. And, you know. Ultimately, that's where it's headed, where, uh, again, actually, it's very funny. Lung gets bailed out, and then he has to get bailed out again. Uh, yeah, he gives us that whole, I mean, it's great. He gives us the whole painstaking sequence of him begging and and guilt-tripping these guys into getting the money and scraping the bail money together. And almost the instant the guy is, like, out of jail another precinct comes by and scoops him up. So all the work he just put in is for naught. And beyond that, it's like he's now also in the position of, I can't 
do that again. I got what I, I got blood from a stone to get you out in the first place. And now it's like, well, fuck, where are we going from here? You know? Yeah. I think it's what the East and the West divisions yeah. of yeah, the, like, the yeah, police that was force. East Kowloon. This is West Kowloon. You're yeah. walking over here too. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, Oh no, I fuck God, I fucked up their name so bad. So Brother Wa needed to be bailed out because Brother Lung is who he then turns to. Right. When he has to bail him out again. Because yeah. he's like, oh, Lung is the one living large. God, I fucked that up so bad. Uh, that's fine. <laughs> it's uh, okay. It's a confusing movie in terms yeah. of like again, it's stuffed with plot and there's and a lot details. of guys. Yeah. There's a lot but of it guys. feels very clear when you're sitting and watching it. Yes, you know? yes. And right, so then he has to go to this guy where we then learn, like, why is this guy smoking nice cigars? Well, it's because he's running a black market stock operation out of some warehouse. Yeah, like a boiler room or something. Yeah. And again, another guy that, that shows him, like, shows Panther, hey, man, like, there's better ways of doing what we used to do. And I found one, right? Again, it's, it's the same kind of principle. Like, we're just out here trying to make money, but... Let me teach you about the internet, right? Let me teach you about computers. I just think it's an interesting connection. I was thinking about while watching these movies where Brother Panther is committed to the old ways, the ways they've always handled oh, yeah. things and handling everything internally, going to people you know. And then Brother Lung here, right? His scheming and his wealth that he's generating is dependent on the world economy so that yep. when there is the crisis in Greece, that's when he loses it all. And it reminded me of that line in Bamako where someone does mention, I think it's the same woman we've been quoting this whole time because she gives such like a great testimony, but she mentions why should the fate of a nation be dependent on what they sell abroad? And that's a preoccupation, I think, through a lot of their discussions and their testimonies of we can never be self-sufficient because you've thrown us into this structure where we are dependent on the rest of the world for our exports. We can never meet these profit goals. We're constantly indebted to, to all of you because you have these standards of how our money should be spent and how we should be using it globally. Um, and instead, we're not seeing the actual rewards from that spending and that work in our own economy. And I think it's interesting then that comparison of, yeah, we've got Brother Panther who's like, this is, you know, I I'm sticking with the code. We're handling everything within the family. We're keeping it all here in Hong Kong. And then Lung's like, hey, no, you take this. We got I got the global market here. But then, yeah, we see where that all leads. Yeah. And it also leads certainly to us learning that. It's also not really Lung's operation. He's kind no. <laughs> of just the middleman, you know? And I think that's also key, right? It's like, yeah, well, we we have bosses now, too, you know? Like, we're not just some independently operating unit, but, uh, you know, there's a, there's a much bigger man upstairs that we have to answer to, right, who represents that global financial system. And everything in Hong Kong, too, is just so, like, tense, I think because of the place it occupies in or did and, and does occupy in the global economy being this 
finance sort of heavy place going back to the 70s and 80s, uh, being this, yes, you know, the most capitalistic sort of outpost, you know, maybe besides Macau or whatever. But yeah, that high risk sort of atmosphere pervades everything because they're a tiny island. They don't have that. They don't have a lot of exports, right? They rely on things like financial services and yeah. other industries like that. Yeah, you know? it was like mm-hmm. London's it was like London's satellite stock exchange for the East for Asia. Yeah. And so the, yeah, that like precarity again I think comes through and I do want to just mention that this film has a ton of great close-ups of like powerpoints and graphs and like software called like Golden Pineapple Trading System. <laughs> uh, there's just like so many little details like that that are that are really fun in terms of like the ephemera of like early 2010s technology. Yeah. Well, I think you, Ryan, you put it well earlier, you know, when you were sort of talking about the, the, the stakes and the tension that can be in this, that it can still be a Johnny Toe movie. It can still be action packed, right? Instead of Beretta's, instead of submachine guns, it's, it's keyboards and cell phones. Those are the weapons that can very quickly like end someone's existence, end someone's life. All those screens. <laughs> well, there is a little bit of action in Bamako. Yeah. Really, really two two sequences, right? You know, if we count the desert, is that action? Sure, I think so. Yeah, the big, like, immigration walk through through the dunes. Yeah, I'd say so. But, yeah, the one I'm thinking of specifically is <laughs> when we've got yes. the, the, the special participation of Mr... Mr. Donald, Danny, excuse me. Oh, Donald Glover. Crime, talking about crime. Yeah, sorry. Rip. Um, No, when we have the very fun participation of Danny Glover in Death in Timbuktu, a Western that everyone is uh, gathered around in like a community center to watch on TV late at night, uh, preceded by some technical difficulties, which I thought was like a nice oh, little yeah. touch too when the local station's about to put on, you know, the, the entertainment for the evening. But yeah, I, you know, it's funny. I, I guess I don't have like anything per- particularly notable to say about it other than I just enjoy it and think it's like <laughs> a really pleasant diversion in the movie. Well, again, you know, it's like you were talking about the, the, the almost like sleight of hand transition for Johnny Toe through time. I mean, there is like no, other than the fact that they're like announcing that there's there's going to be a film on TV, like it just suddenly, it's like snap. We're, we're just like in an entirely different movie, you know? Yeah. And there's, there's no real like transition between that broadcast and suddenly us just being in some strange, surreal Western with Danny Glover and a few other fellas. Like, we're just watching the credits. And, you know, I think in a lot of other films, when they they do that sort of transition and be like, oh, this is a thing that everybody's watching, a lot of times people will almost do like a, a step down in quality to be like people are watching a broadcast on TV. And this was almost like strangely a step up in quality compared to the way the rest of the film was. Uh... You know, suddenly it's very glossy. We get right. these like wide Western vistas. I mean, it's it was crazy. I was unprepared for it, and again, like I was writing notes, so I like was like again, I like looked down, and then I looked up, and I was like, "What the hell just happened?" I was like, "What is going?" I, was, I, I totally like missed it. I had to rewind it and then go like, "This is the movie that everyone's watching," because it just happens so quickly, 
so suddenly without any real like you know transitional explanation well yeah because of the technical problems it cuts in and it just says presents and you're right. just like in in the movie but even then we leave the movie before anything like really decisive happens like there's some gunfire and gunplay and people are shot but it's really like we just yeah watched four minutes of a movie we didn't finish you know <laughs> um, and it has an interesting effect and again I think back to that point of like you know, not making explicit necessarily what the connection is, right? Because I'm thinking, all right, well, it's a it's a Western with Danny Glover. So is this supposed to represent Hollywood or represent like the kinds of like media that comes from the the outside the West? But then I'm also looking at this film and going like, okay, it's like these like gross white cowboys ride in, uh, you know, out for blood. I'm like, are these guys the World Bank? Like, what is going on? And then Danny Glover like shoots one of them. He's good. We love that. We love Danny Glover. And then it just kind of like, yes, transitions out of it. So I couldn't really like make heads or tails of it, but I did have like all these thoughts firing off in my head yeah. while it was happening. <clears throat> I, think you you know? could, I think you could take it. You know, however, first, yeah, I mean, obviously you can take it however you'd like. Oh, but I, I will. I, but I, I think even another way for me, the, the way that I was like kind of connecting to it was, and only in like later reflection, not while I was watching it, I was still trying to figure out what the hell was going on. But later I really was like, what is that sequence all about? And like, why the film, why did it look that way? Why did it feel that way? Because it is like dreamlike too, you know, mm -hmm. it, it's, it's a very bizarre Western. It's a very bizarre film. And I, I, again, I just went back to this idea when they like cut out of the film of just like the, the people of Mali kind of like, you know, in this place sitting around and watching this, this thing. And then the, the like snap back to the realities of their situation. And this sort of like, you want to talk about stakes, you know, it's like these action movies, these westerns. It's like look at these, look at these phony stakes of life and death and people sure. fighting for survival. And it's like, don't forget outside of this, this sort of like phony uh, drama that we are gonna like, you know, invest ourselves in. There's a very real drama outside this frame, which is again, ironically, also a film. And I think he does make several jokes in his movie about movies, about filmmaking, about that. I mean, like, there's a guy that's trying to enter the courtroom with a camera. Oh, yeah. And, like, the guard specifically says, no one films in here. And it's like, wow, we're filming right now. Right. <laughs> you know, we're watching the movie. <laughs> and, like, that guy plays, like, a, a sort of strange role in the community. He's, like, the community videographer or something like that. But and he's he the crime scene uh, photo guy, too, right? Or whatever. Yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, the whole movie has a great deal of like really thoughtful irony that I think makes it like a very pleasant watch, but also really does add a lot of weight to a lot of the accusations that are made against the IMF because they bring up the fact, right, that of course, before colonization, they were financially secure. I mean, Mali individually was one of the wealthiest nations in the entire world. I mean, there's the, I think it's like the richest man who ever lived, they said, was from Mali. And he like changed Egypt's economy just by like passing through because he was handing out gold <laughs> to everybody. <laughs> but they, they make a big point of that because they were wealthy and stable before they came in and then were pillaged of their riches. So it's almost as though 
they're they're drawing attention to the fact that the fact that we're having this conversation is ironic because why should we even have to bring this up it is just so self-evident historically of what you've done for us you used us to develop your nations we have developed europe and look at what is left with us so he both he i think he approaches the film with a great deal of irony, both politically and also through sequences like this with Danny Glover through this like Western passage, mm-hmm. um, which is, I think, one of the things where when you read just the base synopsis of this movie, it might register as like, oh, is this thing going to be didactic? Is this, you know, and I wouldn't say it's not a roller coaster ride or anything, but I think like the film is suffused with so much life that it does make it like a really palatable experience. Oh, yeah, it, it flew by for me and, you know, it's just like vibing. You know, and and you get to, yeah, you get to just like sit and hang out with so many different people. Uh, That's always a thing I love in any movie where we get this like wide variety of of portraits and and insights into just a a little thing here and there or a bit of, you know, playfulness. These the two guys talking outside, like when they're talking about like death, I was laughing. The one guy just like, yeah, man. Death is the is the way to go. Yeah, you know, but it's I can't like wait. it's in this like <laughs> yeah, but it's it's in this very like droll, you know, very like funny kind of way. I mean, there's my favorite guy in the whole movie is this guy that gets called up to the stand in the trial, and they go, "All right, uh, come on down," and he goes up there, and he just says nothing mm-hmm. yeah. for a long time, and they're like, "Sir." Sir, you got to say something, you know? He says nothing. because yeah, what is there to say? Exactly. And then he just pieces out. He walks out of the courtroom. And then later, we get to hear him recount this, like, horrifying dream, he, recurring dream that he has. Oh, my God. Yeah. And if I, I'm, if I remember correctly, his character is an unemployed school teacher, right? Which I think is also part of the reason that he doesn't say anything because it's obviously really powerful just to have someone who is representing African society amongst all of these other people go up there and say nothing and to be just like, what is there even to say? Even after hearing everyone's impassioned pleas, what words could I possibly say? But I think there's something too about all of the accusations about no money going towards social services. And it's, look at me, I'm an unemployed school teacher. Why, you know, why are we cutting jobs for school teachers? If like, that's what the implication there is like, I am evidence, my existence. Like, that's why right. don't I have a job? And that's certainly the implication, you know? And yeah, that guy, amazing. Like, I, you know, maybe I don't need to recount his whole whole dream, but he, <laughs> his dream is basically that he, he, you know, he's in this like netherworld and there's a bag and he keeps pulling heads out of this bag, but they're all the same face, but he can't tell whose face it is. And it's obviously this symbol for, you know, the the whatever politics the global financial system yeah. that that thing the, you know all these heads of state that are all interchangeable <laughs> you know and he and the guy who he's telling it to just goes don't tell anyone this <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> incredible, you know, yeah. just like really funny stuff uh, inter- interspersed with, yeah, you know, characters recounting profound dreams. Like it is just fun like that, the way it moves into all these different things. I did want to quickly point out too, just because the African Western is such a rare thing. That little passage reminded me of there's this really great film that you both should check out if you haven't seen it from 1966 called The Return of an Adventurer. And it's only 35 minutes long, but it's like a Western from Niger. And it's awesome. And it feels I also kind of wonder if he's riffing on that a little bit. I don't know if they're like plots really overlap at all. But when you think like the African Western, there's really just this one thing that is like pretty unique from 1966. So I would, I'd recommend our listeners seek it out. I think it's on YouTube. It's really cool, though. Well, there is also a very cool like kind of like neo Western that just came out, I think, last year, the year before uh, Saloon. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. I think it only played like two days at the music box and then just like went right to shutter. Um mm-hmm. But but that that is is maybe the second then that I'm sure. aware of anyway. <laughs> at least yeah, at least the one I could think that came out before Bamako came out. You know, if it had a reference point. I have to say, for me, while watching Bamako, I I kept thinking about Peter Watkins, and I kept thinking about uh, La Commune specifically because I thought it had a very similar kind of spirit. Again, this kind of you know, hybrid between a, a sort of, in the case of La Commune, like a, a historical recreation and like activist political street art. And, and that's very much the, the same sentiment I got while watching this, uh, this sort of like question of like, well, why would you even do any of this? Why would you set this up? Why would these people give all of their time to take part in this trial, which is clearly taking up, you know, many days right Mm -hmm. there's a lot of witnesses and and the implication is i think also that there's probably a lot of other uh, court you know proceedings that we didn't see you know but that this is this is a very lengthy trial um and again it's like why would you go through all this why would you take part in this purely symbolic act and it's like why wouldn't you, you know, again, it's this sort of yeah. like uh, this affirmation of if the situation is what it is, if it is beyond the control of, of any of us, like this is the best way to, to have some control, to have some control again, maybe even if, if anything, as Ryan put it, like of simply the narrative of, of simply not accepting someone else's, but, but crafting your own narrative out of these events out of this situation i mean i wish there was more stuff like it i mean I really yeah. did. <laughs> it did remind me a lot of court you know speaking of yeah. our disorder mm-hmm. in the court episode i think there is a, a good deal of uh you know spiritual overlap from uh some of the stuff we we saw there well especially in one of the final witnesses uh there's this and i believe it's the man from from the opening who was initially told hey like wait your turn there's there's a we've got a whole list of witnesses here but when he finally does get up to testify what he presents is an untranslated in our film, right? There's no yeah. subtitles. And and it's not even in French. It's in an African dialect. Uh, I'm assuming one that's spoken by the people of, of this region of, of Mali. And it is a, a 
a haunting song. I mean, he just sings his pain and his anguish. And again, it's like we're going back to this this question of like the teacher who who goes to testify and and has nothing to say. What what could you possibly say there? And and for him, what else is there to say other than this 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 painful music, this painful music which for me seemed to invoke hundreds of years of suffering and and anguish. I mean, it's it was rocking me to my core. Yeah, I love that whether intentional or not, it's untranslated in the copy we watched. I think it's intentional since the subs were like hard-coded into the film, so I imagine that the the film was designed to be presented this way. But it is so moving to listen and to watch him sing it without knowing what the words are, but still feeling like you know everything he's saying throughout the duration of the song and it never feeling one note just like as the song evolves you can feel like that rush of energy evolving within you it does it is a it is a song that also reminded me very much of the anthem in court of him in the streets singing to the public you know yeah very similar spitting fire i mean like yeah i was like I was like, okay, now we got a new verse. And it's like, on a very weird, strange, like timeless level, I felt like I was, I, I, I was, I, I completely understood the language. Yeah. You know? Me too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just as I completely understood Johnny Toe's language when he uses uh, the leitmotif of the musical score, this kind of like twinkly, dreamy cue that he actually, you know, that's the one thing he does use in flashbacks. He doesn't visually signal the time change, but he'll use this music cue. The do Yeah, yeah, yeah. Pairs well with Bamako's and a yum, 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 yum. That's right. <laughs> they go good together. And ultimately, where is all this heading? Life without principle. My God, the market is collapsing. Everyone's in shambles. And the music cue hits. And we then circle back to the end of the first segment, or the segment with Teresa <laughs> the banker, where she sees the death of Yen in the parking garage. And we now then go for the rest of the movie in what I can only describe as 
Griffith mode as we cut between three the three protagonists or the three storylines really uh, that then all start to interact because of course, Panther and Lung, after their uh, black market stock collapse, uh, Lung did a very bad thing and tried to like do some shady accounting. Uh, and he's now <laughs> in uh, deep shit with Sung, this sort of like mysterious uh, financial boss that uh, we'll get to see in a bit. And uh, they're like, shit, we need money. Uh, we need to give this guy some, we lost a bunch of this guy's money. He's probably going to kill us. Uh, and so they decide, of course, to uh, rob the loan shark, who they know is uh, swimming in cash yeah. at the moment because of the deal that they uh, are making with him. And they're just going to rob him, you know, because they're so desperate. And so Panther goes to rob him in the parking garage. He's hiding in the backseat of the car when, out of nowhere, another guy comes and, and fucking robs him and fights him in the parking garage and they like bludgeon each other to death. Yeah. And Panther's just like sitting in the back seat, like what the fuck, yeah. you know? Shaking, clutching a box cutter. Yeah. And, and then he takes the, he takes the money and runs. Right. So that's how, you know, Teresa's storyline, of course, and uh, Panther's storyline start to interact through the loan shark. Um, meanwhile, <laughs> There's so much going on. Meanwhile, yeah. I, I meanwhile. mean, I had I had like totally misremembered this movie too because I had remembered the last thirty minutes being like not this Griffithian thing, but the, I remembered it as thirty minutes telling the story of those two people that did bludgeon that man to death, and that's not what we get. No, <laughs> oh. they're barely in the movie. <laughs> no, and they just like yeah, they just like worked for worked for him, yeah. and they just That's wanted to like rob quickly. their boss. Yeah, you know? it's just tossed away. Uh, no, uh, we then <laughs> we get the whole storyline about the cop having a, a, a sort of like illegitimate uh, sister from his now dying <laughs> father, right. uh, <laughs> and the mother's in the mainland. They can't contact her, and here's this kid, you know. So he's got this like apartment deal on the line that Connie set up. He's got this kid on the line and she calls him out for not having principles because he doesn't want to adopt this kid. He's like, I don't know this kid. Meanwhile, no, anyway. Yeah, uh, then there's yeah, like a man with a big tank of gas in an elevator. There's, yeah, there's yeah. everything you could think of in the final 30 minutes so of this yeah, movie. Well, it's again, just... you know, it's 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 his big way of, of, of trying to link these sort of like micro dramas and, and you know, uh, crimes and thrillers to the broader idea of living in the globalized world where again you know something that can happen in Greece can have an effect on all you know meanwhile in Greece you know it's, yeah. like, I mean, it's all connected you know one person's bag of cash uh, had to come from somewhere and it's got to go somewhere and it's it might get filtered through a bank but you know it, it's tied into to to real estate deals and to, you know, this, this banquet. I mean, everything is, everything is connected. I mean, like, yes, there's the crime and there's three, three parties, but it's this fugue, right? So it's sort of like, there's, there's so many different storylines that are kind of all overlapping and interacting and, and it spirals into the crime and then it spirals sort of back out to, how all these people are going to uh, to I guess you know succeed or fail in yeah. in the wake of the of the crime. 
You're like blowing my mind. I'm now thinking about the story structure of this movie being modeled after globalization. The idea that it's all of these things that you wouldn't think would be interconnected, but he's proving that through his narrative design, everything is connected and everything is overlapping and everything affects each other. Wow. Again, it's 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 to me why it's such a a perfect double feature because they're, they're again, they're both saying they're both saying the same thing. They're both exploring the same thing. But again, as as we've pointed out and I think explained hopefully to our audience that <laughs> they they're going about it in very very different ways. Well, I love when we finally catch up with the guy that committed the murder from the first scene. Again, the guy with the gas tank and this is like a moment from Bamako, right? He goes, uh, he gives this whole spiel. Uh, I came to Hong Kong a half century ago. I worked in the textile industry uh, until it died up. It changed to electronics, but then the factories went to China. I was a night guard, a movie extra, and I worked all kinds of jobs. <laughs> worked all kind of, yeah, kinds of jobs to be able to afford to live, right? Yeah. He just gave you the 50-year experience. Well, and even know? then, establishing a direct link, you know, in a, in a certain way, I guess you could see Life Without Principle as the sequel to Bamako, because he's also alluding to, hey, we've gone through all of this with you, you goddamn Americans and, and Germans and Brits and French. Like, we've gone through it all with Europe and America, and now what do we have to look forward to? China on the horizon. And it's it's, you know fast forward to today and what is like so many of the concerns it's china buying up african nations debts to to now also plunder their resources and make them beholden to chinese banks and to the chinese financial system and so in a way it's kind of like the the crisis that they're outlining and the future crisis that they're going to be facing is that now we're going to be tight if it's not you we're getting like we're going to be tied in hopelessly to the chinese economy and now we're going to be uh, we're going to have new overlords that's what we have to look forward to 10 not you know not even 10 years later yeah. it's all coming true because goddamn yen's running around you know shaking everybody down you know like, <laughs> it's like yeah i read a, this fucking guy i read just this week about you know how china's uh challenging uh the World Bank and IMF in terms of their debt restructuring because there's, you know, obviously the IMF and World Bank have these horrible deals for all these countries which cannot be changed. Uh, and China's like, you guys should just break them and, and work with us, yeah. right? So they're mm -hmm. actually challenging that hegemonic power like in a direct way right now. I mean, that is uh, an unfolding drama. Oh, yeah. You know? they're, 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 they're in some cases like offering to buy the debt yeah. just, just straight out. It's so funny that Bamako ends with a sentence of a the, – the sentence given to the IMF and the World Bank is community service – for all of eternity. And you end that movie with a little bit of hope in your heart thinking, oh, is that what happens next? And then you turn on life without principle and you realize, no, that's not the direction any of this went. <laughs> um, I, I have a question actually for you, Marsh. Yes. Maybe Ryan, you might know this as well, but you know, um, life without principle is also an essay by Henry David Thoreau. Yeah. Uh, with very, very similar thematic material. That had to be a very intentional oh, choice, yeah? I don't know if you've... I, I've, I've just always assumed that, yeah. you know? I don't have any record of that, but I think it's 
unmistakable, assuming it's a direct translation. Right. But even if it isn't, someone sat down and we talked, was like, well, how, what's the English title of this movie? Right. So, uh, that's gotta be intentional. Okay. I would assume. Yeah. The, for those who, who aren't super familiar, um, with, uh, Thoreau, Thoreau wrote an essay, uh, on this and I had to read it in my honors class in fucking high school. So I barely remember it. Um, but you know, essentially it's just basically about, uh, how he sort of was reflecting on that certain people seem to live their life without principle in the sense that they were obsessed with work and money above all things. And I know there's a lot more in there, but I can't really remember it beyond that because I was in high school and barely reading these things, you know. But I like tried to like look it up again and, and like Wikipedia and be like, what the hell is in this thing? And then I just was like, I don't even why I'm bothering here. There's more, there's there's more going on here than than just this. But I but I also again I didn't know if it was like a literal translation of the title or if it was a a conscious thing. Yeah, I don't know. It's probably it's probably riffing on it. That's how I, I imagine. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, considering the subject matter and considering everything, <laughs> I think we can safely say yes. Um, and the, you know, I don't think we, uh, because it's such a thriller, I don't think we need to like give away the ending of, of Life Without oh, Principle. No, no, no. But no, no. Um, I do think, you know, what Andy said in the beginning is very apt, right? In, in many ways, it does sort of end up as a, as a revenge film. And the film does go places uh, that, I certainly remember. I remember seeing it the first time, being like, "Wow, it ends like that!" You know, mm-hmm. it's like really kind of uh, kind of interesting, right? Um, after everything we've seen, you know. But uh, we'll leave it up to uh, to you to experience, you know. Yeah, not you. And I guess you know, I do say that <laughs> Bamako ends with that sentence of community service for eternity, and you might feel a little bit of hope, but it does have an exceptionally tragic final moment. Where Shaka, one of the very few characters that doesn't partake in the trial, but that we have referenced before, he's he's uh, his partner is the lounge singer. He does commit suicide by the side of the road. And again, there's still a little bit of irony there because that final image is him lying dead on the road. And farther down is a car that had stopped thinking that the sound of the gunshot was their tire popping. And that's like the image we're left with, a man walking around a car checking to see if he's got a flat tire while there's a dead body right in front of his face that he can't see. Followed it's a by great final image. Well, it's not the final image because oh, then, <laughs> then it's a video. It's video of the funeral. Uh, oh, that's of, right. Of, of, we get a whole him. And yeah. People are grieving and praying, and there's a dolly shot that shows like every character in the movie just You're like right. in prayer or sitting around in honor of him. Uh, and then everyone leaves that space, which was the courtroom, and it's just the gate to the courtroom that then closes and it cuts and gives us the quote. And isn't that kind of how court ends? Doesn't it also yeah. end with like just everybody leaving <laughs> yes. the courtroom? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Well, yeah, but that image is just so poetic. That's like why my mind had remembered oh, yeah. it as the final image because like that's the lasting impression you have from it. But again, yeah. then there's community. There's the funeral. It's not not all hope is lost. That's right. That's right. Just like in Johnny Toe's world, not all hope yes. is lost. Yes. Yes. Yet. Well, Andy, we went to the bank. Our balances were a bit low. There is, there's not a lot of hope uh, in, in these two bank accounts. Um, 
But, you know, I still walked away from the bank quite happy uh, with a little pep in my step. Well, oh, I you, did too. <laughs> are there any other cinematic banks that I should consider moving my funds into instead of um, maybe these? Yeah, I mean, you know, when I picked the topic, I was like, oh, yeah, I know. I know plenty that aren't um, like, you know, because I think it even came up you know, in terms of just how the sausage is made around here, where it's like, well, heist films, of course, you know, heist films. And in my head, I was like, oh, yeah, I know plenty that aren't heist films that that really revolve around banks. And then when I was like sitting and reflecting, I was like, I think most of the ones I really like are all bank robbery. (laughs) I I was like, ah, heist shit, you know, I mean, I think like, um, you know, two that that just come to my mind that um that i i really like i guess leaning into that i mean and obviously marsh marsh has turned me on to a lot of very cool stuff and um you know but but like two that i i enjoy immensely um one is is a classic that i'm sure many people are familiar with but i gotta go with uh, dog day afternoon i just i love that movie so much i i really i i love it and i'm also quite a big fan of Although I was trying to reflect on like how much of it sort of took place in these spaces, but I'm a big fan of Michael Mann's Public Enemies. Uh, I just like his approach to like that classic era of, you know, the Dillinger and the the bank heists and stuff like that. And some really good bank heist sequences in that, you know, capturing those old banks. They're in and out, but... The spaces are, are wonderful. Yeah, and he is a bank robber uh, at the end of the day. So, um, yeah, I think those are like two that that just off the top of my head. I mean, there's there's so many good heist movies. There's so many good robbery movies. I mean, I'm a big fan of Wall Street. But again, these are things I think that a lot of people are very familiar with, you know. I almost I almost thought about bringing Money Never Sleeps. Oh. Kind, of as, <laughs> kind of as like a camp. Uh, sort of choice because it's a very funny, dumb movie that I I like in spite of how bad it is. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm with you. When he's got the slicked back hair again, when he goes full gecko, one of the great <laughs> one of the great moments. You yeah. know, in all of cinema. Well, it was my turn to pick this week. Uh, Ryan, you're up next. So, what do you got for us? Well, things have been pretty busy over here. But I'm seeing some light at the end of the tunnel. Been working on uh, a project for a long time now. Um, A big event coming up. I won't get into the specifics of it. Um, But it's right around the corner. And I see the light at the end of the tunnel. And I knew I needed to give myself something to look forward to. So Molly and I are actually going to go on a little trip at the end of May. We're going to visit my good friend, Nabil uh, friend of the pod, big fan of the pod. We're going to, we're going to head to Portugal. We're going to Lisbon for a week and the Prince of Lisbon, Nabil, he's going to just like take us, everything's in his hands. I've got to, I'm letting him control the itinerary. I'm Probably gonna, take you to the cinema tech. You know? He he certainly is. He's going to take, or maybe we'll try and find some time to grab a drink with Pedro Costa. He likes sending me selfies of, of him and Pedro Costa. They like <laughs> hang out at the cinema tech, I guess. As I'm getting closer to this event, I'm getting pretty stressed. So I want to keep reminding myself that there is something fun on the other end of it. So you know what? Take me on the trip uh, a little bit earlier than I'm actually going. Take me to Lisbon. Let's uh, look at some films shot in the beautiful city of Lisbon. As always, you can follow us on Twitter at Gauntlet Movies or send us an email. 
to Marsh's mailbag at gauntletmoviepodcast at gmail.com. Thanks, everyone. Cash,是中要 Good。我們每日會確認食物。三個會聽我補的。每日都會有一個。十日左右就可以OK。Good。我們公司一樣，目標定立，萬事通。就嚟歸尾啦。都希望大家可以完全安安樂樂。三妹。<音樂><音樂